ATV Talk, the podcast presents Inspired. Sit down with your host, Leonard Duncan, as he interviews men and women whose stories are so inspirational that they need to be shared. Hopefully, their stories may inspire you and create a change. Mondays at 5 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. And remember, dream big. It could be your story one day. GBC Power Sports Tires, a division of Green Ball Corp, has been producing industry-leading tires for ATV side-by-side market for over 25 years, with tires like Mongrel, Dirt Devil, Terramaster, XC Master, Dirt Commander, and Groundbuster. They have a tire for your application. Top racers from GNCC, Works, and Best in the Desert rely on GBC Power Sports Tires. So why shouldn't you? Go check them out at gbctires.com to see the full line of tires they offer. Thank you very much. TPR Stabilizer, a leader in steering dampener technology, brings you the new Q5 Sport ATV dampener with better control and handling with an upgraded vein and seal system. Go check it out today, www.gprstabilizers.com or call 619-661-0101. Don't forget to tell them ATV Talk Sandy. Jim Vidmar, welcome back to ATV Talk. For all of everybody that's listening, Jim is on, going to be on an inspired episode here, but he was also episode 42 on the regular um, podcast uh, platforms that we produce. Um, he's a Pikes Peak Hill racer. Um, I believe he's now since retired, but uh, that's a pretty interesting style of racing. Um, if you've never seen it, you should check out that episode and Jim will uh, will tell you all about it. Jim, how you doing, buddy? I'm good, Leonard. How are you? I am awesome. Uh, things are booming. Uh, we're breaking records uh, almost every day with the the uh, listener base, so we have to thank them very much for that. But it's uh, it, it, it's pretty amazing the the growth in the podcast. That's great. I uh, I really enjoy listening to all of the episodes. Uh, was very honored to be on episode 42, and I'm. Uh, grateful that you're going to have me back again. Well, that's what brings brings this to to uh, to exactly to why you're here. Is um, in the conversations I've had with you, you have a pretty amazing job. Um, you uh, work for the sheriff department. I'm uh, going to let you fill in the blanks that you can uh, talk about. You're the first law enforcement officer that we've had on the show, and I really, really appreciate uh, the sheriff allowing you to come on with us and talk to you, talk to us about your amazing career. Well, that's great. And I really appreciate uh, you having me at this time slot. I listened to the episode with Daryl Rath recently and the listeners and you are also going to see there's a lot of similarities between what he does in the fire service and he deals with and what I do in law enforcement. But um, I started my career as a member of the El Paso County Sheriff's Office, which is in Colorado Springs, Colorado, um, as a volunteer back in the spring of 1995. And 
that fall, I was hired to essentially do the job I was doing as a volunteer. And that's when I started my full-time employment with the sheriff's office, um, October 95, as a civilian employee working at our jail. Wow. That's crazy. And we're, we're not a small town. A lot of people still think of Colorado Springs as a small town, uh, but there's over probably 650,000 people in El Paso County. And we have a jail that holds most of the time over 1,200 inmates. Wow. So you're busy. Very busy. And it was much different than when I started. I started essentially as a dispatcher in the jail. So I worked in a control room and I would monitor the movement throughout the facility, uh, send help to emergencies, do things like that. But my goal had been ever since I had started volunteering with the sheriff's office to become a deputy. And I achieved that. I began the sheriff's office Academy in the spring of 1997 and mid-year 97, I started as a deputy again, back at the same jail I had worked at as a civilian uh, the years prior. Do they have you start in the jail first? And is that, or is that just where you wanted to be? No, at that time with the sheriff's office, most all of the deputies started in the jail. And I think that's a good thing. I've in now in my 26 years of law enforcement, I think the lessons I learned in the jail as a deputy helped me throughout the rest of my career. Uh, because in the jail setting I was in, there it was me a lot of times in a housing unit with 30, 40, 50, up to close, sometimes close to 100 inmates. And you had to learn how to solve problems, how to get cooperation in ways you just couldn't go in there and and tell people what to do and tell the inmates what to do and expect that they would do it. So I learned, I feel a lot of valuable lessons working in that jail, learning how to communicate, learning about people of different backgrounds. You know, I came from a pretty middle-class background and it was a learning experience for me being a 25 year old young man at that time, uh, you know, enforcing the rules in a housing unit when there were, there could be a 70 year old person that had spent a lot of their time incarcerated that I was the one that was in charge of it. And so it, it was, it was different. It was a learning experience, but a lot of the skills that I learned working in the jail helped me as I moved my way through the sheriff's office into the role I'm in now, which this many years later, I'm a lieutenant in the Internal Affairs Unit. Yeah, we'll get into the, what it's like there. Uh, when you were first trained, trying to become a law enforcement officer, what was the training like, the physical training? We would do similar to military training. We would do PT two or three times a week. We would run. Uh, we would oftentimes run in our duty gear. So our duty belts, our, our ballistic vests, things like that. Um, the academy was really broken into kind of three different phases. There was the skills phase, which was firearms, arrest control, driving, those type of, of skills. There was the classroom phase, which was all of the laws and uh, constitution and criminal process, all those things. And then there was the physical fitness aspect. I can tell you at that time I was pretty thin. Uh, but probably in that academy got me in the best shape I was in for a long time. I've recently 
gotten back into riding, doing bikes and getting some stuff to get back into better shape. But we, um, we put a pretty big focus on physical fitness during that academy. Now, after the academy, at least in our department, there really isn't any type of ongoing physical fitness requirements. And it, it, is that a problem in law enforcement? It definitely can be. You know, you can you can see there are guys that have been, you know, in their career late in their careers that um, certainly are not physically fit. Um, a lot of it probably has to do with the assignments they're in. They've moved away from those assignments that that would require them to be more physically fit. But I'm a proponent, certainly, of a level of physical fitness in law enforcement, just because some of the situations we could get into. You need to be able to rely on, you know, your partner to help you. And if they are not, don't have a certain level of physical fitness, that could be a problem. The same as if they can't, you know, effectively use one of the many tools that we have, uh, that can be a problem. I mean, when you see some of the things that have happened in, you know, I don't want to get too crazy with, with, talking about some of this stuff, but some of the things that we've seen in the media, do you think that a form of MMA training, you know, where you can maneuver people uh, like jujitsu, things like that would be more helpful in training police officers? I definitely think there is room for improvement in training and physical um, defensive tactics training for some, some updated tactics and updated things that would help officers uh, resolve situations quicker. One of the problems, Leonard, with the things we've seen in the media and the things that have happened the last few years is no fight is pretty. You know, they're not like you see on TV. Um, and it is hard to make it be effective and have it be pretty. Um, you know, are there certainly law enforcement officers that have not handled situations properly. Absolutely. But one thing I really want to point out is, you know, there are bad apples in every sector of the world. Um, there are bad plumbers, electricians, there are probably bad ATV builders or motor builders and things like that, as there are bad police officers and, and law enforcement officers. But as a whole, I think our profession is, is made up of very honorable men and women who want to do the right thing. Um, oftentimes are put in very, bad situations that require them to act quickly. And that's the biggest thing, you know, a lawyer that, or a jury that is judging someone that uses force or takes an action, they have hours or in even days to review every piece of what led up to the interaction. And then what, what everyone involved in the situation did the law enforcement officer has to make a decision sometimes in a split second on what they're going to do. And as in racing, when you're coming into a corner and you're trying to decide which line you should use or how to maneuver around another rider to make a pass, you have to make a quick decision. So do law enforcement officers. And sometimes, you know, they make a bad decision. And I think that the public, more education of the public would help them understand what kind of decisions law enforcement officers have to make on a daily basis. But I also do think there is certainly room for some increase in training, uh, the types of training we receive, the tools we have, things like that could, that could help all 
deputies, law enforcement officers be more effective in the way they do their jobs? Uh, I, I kind of agree. If, if you look at professional athletes, which you're a professional law enforcement enforcer, uh, you that didn't make much sense, but I think you get what I'm trying to where I'm trying to go here in the profession of the military guys, the firefighters, the ATV racers, the the, the motorcycle racers or football players or, or whoever you want to talk to. Uh, there's constant training involved in this. And uh, that's one of the things that I don't see that them having you guys go through is constant level training where you, you're in the field for three weeks and then you're training for a week and then you're in the field for three weeks and then you're training for a week because the, the evolution of, of law enforcement, the evolution in um, society um, with the skill sets that some of the people that you're going to come up against have, has got to be a, a huge mismatch almost. Oh, absolutely. When you, you compare the level of training that, for instance, a pro athlete gets compared to the level of training that one of our deputies gets, we certainly have room for more training and we need more training. Um, the problem is, is we still have a job to do, you know, the NFL players play on Sunday afternoon or, you know, Thursday night, Monday night, whatever it is, and they have that whole week to prepare. Um, we have to make sure that we meet the needs of our community uh, you know, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And that's, it's difficult to get that training in and also have the resources in the field that we need. And in a perfect world, I would love to see us, you know, have, if we could get to one training day a week would be such a great improvement over what law enforcement has had up to this point. Um, but even that's difficult. Yeah, I know, because I just don't think the higher ups above you uh, want to spend that nickel uh, to help you. Uh, they want to spend it on something else that really doesn't make society better. Yeah, the money's a problem. The Right now, law enforcement is struggling very much with recruiting and retaining officers. Uh, many, many departments around the country, not just ours, um, are having to switch resources. So where we used to have maybe a traffic unit and deputies that focused only on traffic enforcement, uh, we're having to pull those deputies back just to handle a basic patrol function because of the attrition. And I know other agencies are dealing with those same problems. So part of it is, is certainly the folks at the executive level, but part of it is simply the resources to maintain the, the level of service that's needed. Make we're, we're having trouble meeting those basic needs uh, and it, then it's difficult to pull deputies out of their primary assignment to go to train. But I would agree with you. We certainly need more training. Well, I think everything needs more training, but everything, all walks of life need more training. You know, whatever, doesn't matter what, uh, whatever you do, whether you're a plumber, or electrician or a, a ATV mechanic, you always need some extra schooling to, to help you. And whether it be schooling where you take a few days and just um, hone your craft, uh, you know, with refreshers or, or reading some manuals or, you know, uh, building some scenarios to, so fine tune your skills. That's, that's all things that, that need to be done in every trade, but I want to get away from, I didn't really want to go the direction we did because of political stuff, but that's kind of the, where it went. And I apologize for that. What I really want to know is as a young man, you know, 
how, how old were you when you figured out that you wanted to be in law enforcement? You know, it's kind of funny because there are a lot of people that get in law enforcement that come from a family or from the time they're a small child want to be a police officer. And that really wasn't me. Um, I started working at a wood shop in high school, uh, just a small mom and pop place. And really what I was looking for initially was to find a career that I could retire from, you know, a career that would, I know would be there day after day uh, with a retirement, with a steady income, those kind of things. And I started looking toward the sheriff's office, but not necessarily did I have this passion to be a law enforcement officer from a young age. But I can tell you, once I got introduced to the sheriff's office, I knew right then that's what I wanted to do um, and that I wanted to pursue a career in law enforcement. And it's kind of funny that with my generation in my family, there were no law enforcement officers before us, but at one time there were five of us in law enforcement, myself, um, three cousins, and one of those cousins' wives were all in law enforcement at the same time. Wow, that's pretty crazy. So it it it's it's a was a great has been a great career, and um, I wouldn't. There's certainly some things I would change, just as you. Um, I'm sure in your career as a mechanic, there are probably some races you can look back on that you've done some things different. But overall, I wouldn't I wouldn't change the decisions I've made as far as is entering in the field. Uh, tremendous it's been a tremendous career and i'm happy to have been able to be part of it for so long that's awesome that's awesome so as you developed through the first phase of your career um, how long were you in the jail for i was in the jail from roughly um october of 1995 through may of 99 and what we had was a group detention facility so the inmates weren't locked behind cells if you've seen a prison movie or you know like where the, where the inmates are behind cells most of the time, they were out in a room, a big room with the deputy most of the time. You know, at night they were locked, they were in their rooms, but they weren't really cells. They were rooms with doors on them. Uh, but when they were unlocked, they were out with us. And like I said earlier, there could be some of the smaller housing units. It could be a one deputy and 20 inmates. And then it could have been one deputy and 80 inmates. We were responsible for checking on them, we were responsible for their safety, uh, meals. We didn't provide the medical care, but providing medical care for them. All you know, the, the jail almost runs as if it's a small city. Um, we have everything a, a city would have, that it, but it's all contained within that building. Was it a little unnerving? It was definitely, it was unnerving. It was a culture shock for me. It was... Um, every day you were tested, especially when you were new, the inmates knew you were new, um, and they would test you to see if you were going to, how you were going to handle a situation. Um, and I don't mean by necessarily physically, I mean, by doing things to see how you would react, um, see if you were going to enforce the rules, were you going to enforce them equally, things like that. But it, it, I did a lot of growing up in those those years in the jail. And I, like I had said earlier, I think it really prepared me to move on to be a patrol deputy and then later a detective. And some of those skills that I began to hone in resolving conflicts or dealing with situations in the jail, I used throughout my career. Did it help you read people? It did. Absolutely. 
because in uh, people's behavior don't stop because they're in jail. You have people that are predators. You have people that are victims. You have people that um, are going to try and take advantage of, of you or other inmates. Um, you have people that are going to gamble. You have people that are going to sell things. You Everything that goes on in the rig, in the, the outside world goes in at some level inside that jail. That's just crazy. You know, the currency may be different. Instead of gambling money, they may be gambling commissary. And when I mean commissary, like food products and things like that. But um, a lot of the things that we I saw when I went to patrol, I saw that same behavior and dealt with and learned to deal with it in the jail uh, during my time there. So when you got out on patrol, um, was it just like, driving around in traffic or were you being called to domestic violence, car accidents, things? Um, it was some of both. I mean, we were expected to do some officer initiated type activities. So traffic enforcement, uh, things of that like that, but it was also taking calls for service. I can tell you my first day on my own, I felt like there was no way I was ready to be in a patrol car by myself. And I had gone through three and a half months of training with other deputies, riding in the car with them, going to calls. Uh, But it was just that was I I can still this many years later remember vividly that first day of being on my own in a patrol car, you know, responsible for an area of, of the county. And if any crime, anything was reported in that area, I was the one that was dispatched to respond to to deal with the situation. How how was your first day? Do you remember? Um, it was it was good. I remember I I had kind of met a mentor of mine in during my academy uh, that was a, a deputy had been a deputy for quite a while, and he was working at the range during my academy. And so I had had worked with him, and I probably called him four or five times to ask questions that first day. But you know, as I become more comfortable, um, I started out on a day shift, which I think was good. You know, I didn't wasn't challenges of working at night, things like that. Uh, but one thing about being in law enforcement is the type of calls you get vary from the times you work. Um, so day shift, we got a lot, some colder cars, but we got the domestic violence calls. We got um, in the areas I worked in, we had some schools. So we'd have situations at the schools, different things. Um, the, the deputies at work say when I worked midnights, much more, much less calls and much more init- officer initiated activity during like the midnight shift. What is that? And I've worked all the shifts during my career, but I started after my three and a half months of field training for patrol. I started on day shift. What is what is the officer initiated mean? Um, that's looking for either problems, law violations of law, traffic violations, um, just doing investigations, just at you know getting out, learning your area. You're talking to whether it be residents, business owners. Um, so all officer initiated activity doesn't mean that you're stopping someone because you thought they broke the law or you're doing traffic. It's contacting businesses, learning about what they do, when they come and go, learning in the area you work, those kind of things. Uh, but talking to people, meeting people, and then looking for suspicious activity, especially at night, You know, you're kind of looking for those things that those behaviors that might be something that's leading up to a person committing a crime. Now, if you see a guy walking down the street 
carrying a crowbar, um, you know, might be a clue that they're going to do a burglary, uh, <laughs> things like that. And I mean, that's kind of an outlandish example, but believe it or not, I've seen things like that. I've been driving behind businesses in the middle of the night and saw somebody with a flashlight. Sometimes it's the business owner that's just checking the doors before they leave, but other times it's been person that is looking to do, you know, some kind of harm either to another person or to the business. <laughs> Very diplomatic in the way you say that. Yeah. So, so what's the strangest thing you've seen in the middle of the night? Um, you know, one of the strangest things is when I was promoted to sergeant, I was working midnights is when Pokemon was getting big. And I would, you would see people on the middle of the night and you contact them and they would be playing that game. They would be on their phone playing that game. Um, I went to a 911 in training. I went to a 911 hang up of a lady who was intoxicated and had a warrant. And she knew if she called 911, we would come. And she wanted to go to jail and she figured she would do it on her terms. So I knocked on the door with my trainer and she stood out. She reached her hands out like this and said, I'm ready to go to jail. And the whole reason she called 911 was to get us there so we could clear up her warrant. Now, she could have just driven herself to, or gotten to the jail and turned herself in, but um, That's I've, seen, I've seen lots of crazy things throughout my career, for sure. Well, uh, that's what I'm asking for is what what kind of what kind of story can you tell us that's not going to put you in a precarious situation? Um, I mean, I can get into a lot of the cases um, without getting into details. You know, uh, unfortunately, Lenny, a lot of them, you know, you see cops, the show, TV show cops, things like that. You see a lot of humorous things. And there are certainly have been some humorous things, but. A lot of what I've seen are are not really are not good situations. The things I've seen, and Daryl talked about this in his episode of, of kind of dealing with that. Um, you know, a lot of the the things I've been on have been really tragic situations. You know, uh, I'm through my work with the Pikes Peak Hill Climb. I kind of met some of the fly racing guys. You know, they're based in in Boise. They a few months ago had a mass shooting in Boise. So I, I texted um, the fly racing guy, just check on him. But I've been involved in one of those. I was involved in a, a mass shooting that happened here around Thanksgiving several years ago. I was involved, not initially, I was involved as a detective, but uh, a lot of those situations are actually really tragic and, and really bad situations that I've been involved in. Uh, and carry those. And I think as you move through your career, you carry those things with you and not only for the good, but for the bad, you, you learn from the experiences that you get, you carry them with you moving forward, but also some of those situations you'll carry with you kind of in a negative way, as far as it kind of always will weigh on you at to some point. Are you more gun shy when you go into a crowded space? I'm certainly much more and have been for a long time, much more aware of my surroundings, uh, much more always cognizant of, of who's around me, of the people around me, their behaviors. You know, something you train, you learn as a law enforcement officer when you're brand new is to watch people's hands. Their, their feet won't necessarily hurt you. Their eyes won't, you know, a lot of people talk about when you watch their face or their eyes, what will hurt you is their hands. So I'm, I'm always constantly watching people's hands, watching their movements, watching what they're doing. Are they displaying 
signs that they have a weapon or that they're 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 thinking of doing something um, that's not right. Uh, you know, I don't ever pull up in front of a business, even if I'm in my car. I park on the side of the business. That's something I learned when I first started driving a patrol car. You go to 7-Eleven, you always park. You don't park right in front of the door. Uh, you don't pull up next to a car at a stoplight. If I'm pulling up to a stoplight, even in my car, I offset back a little bit. Just things like that that now this many years later are second nature. Uh, Why is what what is the reasoning behind uh, the uh, stoplight? Just because if somebody wants to shoot at you or engage you, if you're right next to them and there's a car behind you and a car in front of you, you have no escape route. Right. But if you're offset, just like as I would approach a car during a traffic stop, if I came up to your driver's side door, I would always stay behind your door and up tight against the car. Because if you want to do me harm, it's much harder to do it with me in that position than if I'm right across from you outside your driver's side window. Right. So things like that. Wow, that's it's just common sense if, when you think about it that way. Right. And, and so many more people, I think, would be safer if they would, you know, take their earbuds out, if they would pay attention to their surroundings. Um, then if it just so many people just go through life kind of oblivious to the world around them. And that's one thing about being in, in law enforcement is, is that a normal person, say normal, just an average person does not they don't re realize what is out in the world, the kind of things that police officers, deputies, state troopers deal with, because they don't ever see that segment of the world, most of them. Um, you know, you hear things about, you talked about earlier about the training, kind of how we should deal with people and, you know, the inmates, we, we should give them more programs and, and do things like that. But you know, there are some truly dangerous people in the jail, and there's a reason why they're there. And, you know, giving them an art program, as an example, isn't going to fix that. Uh, and, a, and a lot of the public, don't, they don't recognize that. And they don't realize that what's out there. They don't, um, you know, regular people's kids don't have a plan if they're in a store and something bad happens of what to do. My kids did. They knew what to do if I told them a word, you know, to beat it, basically. They knew what to do. Um, unfortunately, you know, with my kids, when they were growing up, they knew when I was a detective, if I said a certain word like a homicide, they knew they might not see me for three days, things like that. Uh, but it's overall, I wouldn't, I wouldn't change. change how was, how was that on the family life? Um, it's difficult. I was thinking about that question, but I, you know, I don't think it was, it's terribly more difficult than maybe your job when you were on the road with Doug, that probably was difficult on, on your family life. Um, it certainly was. And I'm lucky. My wife is, she is not a law enforcement officer, but she works in law enforcement. So she understands my, my kids have grown up. You know, they were, they, neither one of them were even born when I started. So they kind of grew up with it, but certainly I have missed how I had to miss things. Um, I specifically remember being at a Christmas play when I got called out for something as a detective. Uh, and, and that could be difficult, but there is some perks, you know, the, the sometimes having those three days off during the week are really nice where you can do, I could do things with kids and, and spend time with them. 
during that time when it was things weren't as busy and things like that. So there was some trade off, but certainly saying my job, it certainly has an effect on the family life for sure. Does, did, did knowing your wife, knowing what you did and being part of law enforcement, um, how many times did you get the call to make sure you were okay? Not a lot. Um, luckily when we got married, I was a detective. So I was out, but I wasn't on the front line. Um, I, I can guarantee she did not like when I got promoted to Sergeant and worked midnights on patrol for about a year. I, she never called me, but I, I, I guarantee she didn't like that worried about me. And, and then this last year I've been in trial affairs, but the year before that I was on midnights at the jail. Um, she probably didn't, didn't really like that too much, but luckily, uh, when her and I were together, it wasn't early in my career where I was working patrol and working at night, working the weekends, things like that. Really? That's, that's yeah. pretty crazy. Um, as you progress through uh, being a detective, um, you mentioned that you got promoted. So how did you end up back in the jail? Well, as normally how our, our department works is if you're promoted to sergeant, so the rank goes from deputy to sergeant, um, you stay generally in the half of the office where you work. And I mean, I half, I mean, either the law enforcement side or the jail side. So when I was promoted from detective to sergeant, detectives are in the law enforcement side. Then I went as a sergeant on patrol. Because normally when you get promoted, you kind of start at a base assignment, which is generally either the patrol or the jail. And then from there, you move, move around. But when I got promoted to lieutenant, that's becoming kind of an executive staff level. And you're kind of expected to be able to work with within the, the department, wherever you're needed. And when I got promoted, it happened to be that I was needed to go to the jail. So and so right. that's, and it was a big, it was a huge adjustment for me because Leonard, I hadn't worked in the jail as a deputy since 1999. And here I am in 2019, going back to the jail for the first time in 20 years. Um, and it had changed a lot. It was, it was a, I was learning to be, you know, a new executive level supervisor. So not a first line supervisor and then working in an environment that was completely unfamiliar. I don't know how many situations I went to and I reverted back to what we did when I worked there as a deputy and, and the sergeants of the deputies would pat me on the shoulder and laugh and be like, Lieutenant, we don't, we don't do that anymore. You know, but that's what I knew because that's the last time I had worked in that, in that facility. Did, did it need to change that much? It's changed much because when I worked there, there was about 600 inmates and now there's 1,200. Uh, when I worked there, the maximum inmates were at another facility, but they're now at the facility I worked in. Um, so, yeah, things had changed quite a bit just in the way we handled situations, the the amount of inmates, just the amount of things going on at the facility really a change. Just so much more going on than there was when I had worked there before as a dad. Is it, do you think that there is a uh, um, problem with the legalization of marijuana? I certainly think that we see drugs that are, or crimes that are related to drug use for sure. Um, 
we have a huge problem in this area with still illegal marijuana cultivation. Uh, I was out on a, a big grow. Now part of my job is, is um, I supervise the evidence facility. So I was out at a large grow. We, we confiscated thousands of plants here a few months ago. So it's certainly still is an issue. Um, a lot of the proponents, proponents of legalizing marijuana you said all that stuff was going to stop. It was legalized and it hasn't. Not, did it slow down at all? Um, it's something slowed down. Like your, you know, the the possessions of small amounts. Yeah, that's slowed down. Those are things that five, 10 years ago we would have taken action on that we don't now. But the big grows, the mass cultivation, those things have gotten worse, in my opinion, since the legalization. Yeah, because there's a bigger, big, bigger business. Yeah, they have massive grows all over the desert here in Southern California. Right. And we have the same problem here in the more rural parts of the county. Uh, when we come across, we'll come across massive grows. Uh, and even in the city, in the more urban areas, you know, folks will come in from out of town. They'll rent a house for a year, pay cash, and they'll, they'll completely gut the house and they'll use it as a marijuana grow. Industrial buildings are, are big too, right? Yeah. Has it made an impact on, on the, the people in this society that you have to deal with, you know, um, as far as creating um, societal issues like homelessness or um, lack of work or driving under the influence? Definitely driving under the influence. I think we, we've certainly seen an increase in not just you know, in DUID, so driving on the influence of drugs as opposed to when I started most of the time, if it was an impaired driver, it was alcohol. Um, I, I certainly think when Colorado was one of the first states that legalized marijuana, some it some of the it brought some of that element to Colorado because other states it wasn't legal. Now that there's more states, it's probably it's probably shifted out a little bit. Um, as far as a homeless problem, we we have one here, but certainly not like I don't know where you are guys are in, in how it is where you are in San Diego, but I know certain parts of California is really bad as far as homeless, and I don't think we're we're quite at that level yet. Yeah, the, it, it it's not great here. Um, the weather's pretty really good, so it lends itself to be that way. The, the problem is the leadership just doesn't clean it up, right? And and when you've closed all the facilities that take care of those people, well, where do you expect them to go? Right. You know, I mean, it's 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 a shame. I don't I don't have a better answer for you. Well, I can tell you one of the biggest challenges we have in our jail right now is is our individuals with especially with mental illness. Uh, yes, they've committed a crime, but there are so many of the inmates that really what they need is mental health services treatment um, they don't necessarily need to be in jail but because of their mental illness they're either they're violent or are things like that and they're very difficult as far as all of the groups of in, different groups of inmates deal with they're they're probably the most dangerous and some of the most difficult to deal with are the inmates with the severe mental health issues wow. we have a, have a good mental health system and we you know we have a medical contractor that provides mental health service but um, there are those inmates that are just dangerous, you know, gang members and, and dangerous, but 
some of the ones that are the most dangerous are the are the inmates that have mental illness because one time you can open their cell door, no problem, everything will be fine, and then the next time they'll just they'll they'll with no warning, you know, attack a deputy or something like that. Is is it is that uh, likely um, for deputies to be attacked? I mean, is it what I'm trying to say? Is it common? Fairly common, yeah. And, and the level is is different. And in those housing units with those high risk inmates, we put more deputies so that that you're not working generally those by yourself and things like that. But but yes, we we have certain classifications for inmates that say we have to have at least two deputies when we open their cell door. Is it not to get too far off into the weeds here, but do you ever get the inmates helping the deputies? We have, yep. Is that frowned upon in their community? It can be, but but there was just, it's, it's fun you ask that, because there was just recently a, a deputy that actually went to the academy with me back in 97, was working in our court section, and an inmate started assaulting him tried to take his weapon and and he was by himself with inmate that was assaulting him and a couple other inmates and one of the other inmates actually helped him help helped him get control of the inmate that was trying to assault the deputy wow and and, and is, is there something that happens to benefit that inmate in that situation or you just get back in line and and do your thing yeah i mean it Certainly in that situation, you know, I, I don't know the charges that that gentleman was, was being held on or those things, but, um, you know, we, we would certainly as our, an organization, we would let, you know, we would let someone know whether that be the district attorney or, or something, know what, what happened so that that can at least be taken into account, you know, in their case. That's that's the, because that does that show a, a form of rehabilitation or or is it just is it just the fact that that person might have committed uh, a crime of for whatever reason and they r- really are going to be okay when they get out? Yeah, it's it's just it's one factor that that through the criminal justice system is taken into account. I mean, as far as like really saying we would you would give them a reward, we just we can't really do things like that. Um, you know, we, we hold the inmates, but we're not the, the judges or the juries or the um, decision makers as law enforcement. We're really the fact gatherers. And that was my job always as a detective is be the fact gatherer, but it was someone, it was not my job to then make the decisions on what happened to the person, uh, their punishment, things like that. So you know, in, in the situation where someone helps law enforcement, you know, we, we certainly want, you know, them to be given credit for that. What, what that credit does for them, that it's different in every situation. Right. Right. I, I bet it is. Any cool car chases? Um, no, not, not really. I can tell you that uh, a, a 95 crown Vic, 96 crown Vic topped out 126 miles an hour. <laughs> so the sports um, cars drive away now in the climate we're in we really get in very for few pursuits when i was back on patrol when i first started in the the late 90s early 2000s i mean if you got in a pursuit once every few months that was a lot and now we get people 
offenders that will try to get our deputies in pursuits much more often. But the the, the laws are more strict now. The the rules are more strict, and we don't our deputies won't engage in pursuits for low level violations because the the risk to the community and in doing that is much greater than the behavior the person was doing before the pursuit happened. So if I go to pull you over because your your license plate expired and you decide to go 100 miles an hour to get away from me, it's much more dangerous at that point than the fact that you were driving with an expired license. So you just let them go? Yep. And if you have the information, you can just pick them up at a later date? Right, right. If we can identify them, then we'll, we'll address the situation at a later date. But it um, oftentimes in a vehicle pursuit, the person that ends up getting hurt or people that get hurt are innocent civilians that are on the road, not associated with it, with the pursuit. And that's what we want to try and avoid. Right. And now my job is to be the one that enforces the rules on the deputy. So that's now I'm putting kind of my, my internal affairs and, and lieutenant hat on when I give that, that pursuit answer. Is the stigma the same as you see on TV for the internal affairs? Do the, do the other deputies and the other officers shy away from the internal affairs guys? Or is it, uh, uh, or is it still one office, one group? A, a little bit. It's not as bad as if you watch a, a police show, especially one based in New York. You know, they talk about internal affairs, the rat squad and, and all these things. It's not that bad, but there certainly is a level. I can tell you deputies that don't know myself or my staff generally don't come up just to visit us in our office unless they're asked to. And why would a deputy be asked to come and see you? What we do in internal affairs is we investigate violate policy violations. So as an office, just as Lauren probably has policies for you telling you you have to come to work and you know, things that you have to do at Duncan Racing, we have policies and rules that our, our employees have to follow. If they're alleged to have broken one of those rules, we're the ones that investigate that. So we investigate our folks, but not criminally, um, but for violation of our policies or breaking our rules. That's the easiest way to boil it down to what, what internal affairs and it can be either a suspension or a reprimand letter or. Yeah, it can go from everything from, a, you know, a, a discussion that, you know, if if Lauren tells you that, you know, you got to put all your tools away before you go home at night and you don't. And he tells you, hey, Leonard, you know, our rule is you put your tools away before you go, go home at night. You know, we could have that with a deputy if we tell you you have to. You know, give a business card, for instance, to a person you stop on a traffic stop. You don't write them a ticket and they don't. It could be as minor as sitting down with that that deputy and explaining the rule, what, why you have to follow it, things like that. All the way up to termination is the worst punishment a person can get for violating one of our rules. Well, it's got to be a pretty, pretty aggressive, uh, flagrant foul there to get terminated. It does. It does. Now, we have a law in the books in Colorado, and you're going to laugh when I explain this, but it's it's a statute that says basically the sheriff can appoint as many commissions as he or she deems necessary and revoke them as they feel necessary. So essentially, it says that the sheriff can hire and fire as they want. Over time, that has, has changed. 
And now there's, there's processes and things like that. But um, we don't have like a lot of times on, you'll, you'll hear about police unions and all that. We have none of that where I work. Um, we work for the pleasure of the sheriff and every eight years we get a new sheriff. And it is a new sheriff or there, or can the same sheriff run again? He can only run two terms in Colorado where we are. And that's four years. Or two four-year terms. Okay. Not come back in any other capacity? No. Well, I mean, he, no one, not since I've been there has, has one done that. They could. Um, they just can't run for a third consecutive term. I guess the sheriff could be the sheriff for, for eight years have another sheriff get elected and be like the second in command that could happen. It hasn't happened in our department, but it could, they just, they're just term limited. Like a lot of other political offices to two terms. Where did they go? Um, Most of them, by the time they run there, if they're within the office, they've been there long enough that they can retire. Um, There's a separate retirement just for sheriffs that are separate from like my retirement with the County. Um, some of them go then into, you know, other law enforcement jobs. They'll become a chief of police somewhere, something like that. Just kind of depends. The, the term limit really only started probably the last 15, 20 years, 10 or 15 years. Before that, when I started in 95, there was a new sheriff elected in 94. But the guy he, he took over for had been the sheriff for like 20 years before that. Oh, wow. So it, it has changed a lot since I've been there. Like All of my sheriffs have been there no longer than three terms. Because at first it was three terms and it was cut back to two. But, but at one point, the sheriff could be the sheriff for really as long as he wanted to be, as long as he could keep winning the elections every four years. That's crazy. So to, to they usually the sheriff comes from internally, not from an external position that that or, or external community that would be voted in. Um, kind of 50 50, like our last this current sheriff, he had been with the sheriff's office. Then he was worked for a smaller municipality police department. And then he ran and, and became the sheriff. Uh, the one the sheriff that was there when I started, he had actually worked for the, his whole career for the Colorado Springs Police Department. I retired and ran for sheriff. So it depends. Right now we're we're starting 2022 will be an election year. And there's a candidate that's currently part of the executive staff now that's running. And then there's a few candidates that are running that are from outside the office. Wow. And you guys have no say. You just have to everybody's got to vote and deal with it. Right. Yeah. And there's real strict rules as far as political um Participating political activities, you can't do any of that while you're on duty. Now, I could myself, Jim Vidmar, could go knock on you or call you up and say, "Hey, you should vote for this guy for sheriff." But I can't. I can't do it on sheriff's office time. I can't represent myself as deputy Vidmar or lieutenant Vidmar endorsing candidate things like that. So you have to be kind of careful, really careful. It's very strict on on what we can do as far as engaging in political activity because we work for a political office. Right. Your community is more rural, isn't it? The areas we patrol are a lot of them are more rural. El Paso County itself is over 2000 square miles. 
but we have the city of Colorado Springs is in El Paso County. So it's, it's a pretty large, it's basically the second largest city in the state behind Denver metro area. Uh, so they have their own police department, but we have some urban areas that are connected to the city that just are still unincorporated. And then we have some rural areas. Is it harder to be a part of the rural section where you're, where you're taking care of the rural area or the more populated areas? Each of them have their own challenges. The rural areas you're dealing with, you're dealing with the marijuana grows like we talked about. Um, you're geographically more spread out, so it takes our deputies longer to get to places uh, because they just have to drive farther. So those are some of the challenges. The urban areas is the, the, the criminal element doesn't know if they're in the city or the county. So they'll commit a crime in this. They may commit a robbery in the at a 7-Eleven in the city and then go a few blocks away and commit a robbery in the county. Um, so there's the deputies that work some of the more urban areas face different challenges and kind of have a different have different things that they encounter more often than the ones that work in the more rural areas. I want to ask a sensitive question. Um, in the last four to five years, has the job gotten harder? Oh, absolutely. It has 100% gotten harder. Uh, more oversight, and not saying that oversight's not bad, because you know we need oversight everywhere, but um, the body cameras, just the the amount of reporting, the, how we have to handle situations, um, has changed tremendously over the last five years. Uh, you know, before as a patrol supervisor, if you were one of my deputies and you you uh, did a traffic stop and and the person that you stopped called in and said you were rude to them. I could talk to that person and if we could address it, we could go from there. Now it's got to be written down. It's There's got to be a complaint number taken, things like that. So just even little things like that have changed and made our jobs more difficult. And, and how many how many of the people that are calling and complaining because they got a speeding ticket, they're just pissed because they got caught doing something wrong? Oh, the majority of our complaints that come through internal affairs are not there's truly not a violation. They're, they're not founded. They're either, either what the deputy did is what we teach them to do or what they did isn't a policy violation. Uh, we have very few that deputies that have really commit really bad acts or, or done things really that have, that are, are really egregious. Most of, most of our complaints are not, they're not founded. You know, this is probably getting off into the weeds again, but you have a deputy that's got a bad situation with a person that's um, not cooperating or is or is rude and violent um, and not to the point where the officers are going to arrest him, but to where it makes the situation difficult for the officer. Um, and they may say something off color, um, you know, foul language, something like that. Uh, how do you handle that? Usually things like that are handled at the real lowest level. The, 
you know, the, the supervisor or a senior officer will, will address it with them. Um, unfortunately, sometimes, depending on who you're dealing with, you have to speak their language, so to speak, sometimes to get them to understand what you need them to do. And um, I would say overall, as a, an office, we do, we do a really good job. Our deputies are, are pretty well-trained and, and generally handle situations pretty well. But those situations like that where people push buttons, those are the times that our deputies get themselves into trouble. Uh, they become emotionally invested in something. And they allow their emotions to take over and they don't make a good decision because of, of the circumstances. And those are the kind of things that we try to address, especially if we address them at the low level when there's something minor to help, hopefully, so they don't make that bigger mistake. Isn't it very difficult to separate your, the humanity from it? It is. But that emotional intelligence piece is probably one of the most important things of not you know, if you're yelling and screaming at me and calling me names and, and things is to not take that personally and do my job and address it the way I should. That's one of the hardest things to do because every one of us is a human. Every one of us is going to at some level take an offense or take it personally what's going on. And but that's a lot of times where we see law enforcement officers get into trouble is when they become emotionally invested and then they make a bad decision or do something that's outside of what the way they should have handled the situation. That I just don't know how you guys can do that. I mean, it, it's it's difficult um, for sure. Yeah, I mean, it, it has to be. I mean, it's it, it's such an underrated job. Well, you know, if if um, if you live next to somebody and your dog goes in their yard and causes a problem or vice versa, I would almost guarantee your neighbor wouldn't call Lauren and say, Hey, Leonard's dog is, you know, sneaking in my yard at night, you know, digging holes in my flowers. I need you to fix it. But if you're in law enforcement and your neighbor knows you're a deputy and that your dog goes in their yard and digs up their flower bed, they will certainly call us to complain about it. <laughs> that's just so unfair yeah you know that's just so unfair yeah and and you, you know things happen like that you know there's just there's just you did nothing you can do about it right one thing we we really talk about to people though is you do represent i mean our staff represent the sheriff and the sheriff's office 24 hours a day seven days a week so and you know, you can't um, do things once you become a deputy or once you become part of the sheriff's office that you might have been able to do when you were in the civilian world. You know, a lot of people run afoul of social media posting things they shouldn't. And even though it's not a reflection, it's not them posting it as the sheriff's office, because if they're known to be affiliated, then it can cause problems. It's same in our industry, same in our world. Yeah. You have to, you have to watch what you do and, and how you do it. And, um, you know, you're, you're, I, I watch what you do is not really what it is, but you just have to think. Right. Uh, is this appropriate? Is this not appropriate? <laughs> you know, 
I mean, same with you guys, the, the, the things that normal people take for granted, it's just not your life, you know? Right. It's against the law and your family members are taking and doing things in front of you that are against the law. That's, I'm sorry, you, you can't do this. Right. And by far, I think most citizens still support law enforcement. They recognize the tough job we have. Um, it's just that small percentage that are so vocal uh, because I, I, I by far through my career had many more positive interactions with people when I've had negative interactions. And I still think that's the case even today. It's just the, it, you know, there, there's more negative interactions, but for the most part, I think generally community still supports law enforcement and still has a respect for the job that we have to do. So if you were going to speak to a young person right now, what would you tell them about what the law enforcement career offers them? I would tell them that it, you know, it, uh, it offers a lot of positives. It offers, although not a great pay, I mean, good pay. If you would have asked me in 95, I wouldn't ever thought I'd make what I make now. I would have told you no. You need granted it's still twenty. It's twenty five years later, but um, there still is the ability in this job to to truly make a difference, even if it's a small difference in a situation. Um, and you know, taking someone to jail isn't always the way a situation is best handled. You know, maybe it's it's getting them some help for whatever the underlying problem is. Uh, maybe it's, you know, taking the time to spend time with a, a, a youth that is teetering. Could what, whoever gets to him for, or her first is going to have that first influence over them or that influence. And if it's a negative element that gets to them, they may swing that way. But if it is a positive element, uh, then they may swing the other way. So, I would tell them that there still there still is a lot of good in the world, even though you get around a lot of older law enforcement officers, they they have fallen into that into that uh, mindset of you know everything's worse. It's the worst it's ever been, things like that. And th- there still is a lot of good in the world. There's still a lot of room to make a difference, but. I can tell you that the new guy has to worry about things that I didn't have to worry about. They have to worry about turning their body cam on. They have to worry about, like you said earlier, everything they say is going to be. When I started, almost no one had a cell phone in 1995 or very few people did. The ones that did certainly, it couldn't record video and audio. It couldn't do all the things our phones do now. Um, So I would tell them that they have challenges they're going to face that I didn't have to as a new deputy. I didn't have to deal with the, the recording, the body cam. I didn't have to have every action scrutinized. Um, so those are the biggest things, but I, I still, we still need law enforcement and hopefully the tide will turn at some point in the nation. Uh, you know, after 9-11, every, everybody by far was generally pro-law enforcement, pro-military, pro what we did and, over time, it swung, and hopefully, it swings back. And uh, young people are can be encouraged to go into the career. I can tell you, it's it's getting harder and harder to attract people into the career right now. 
well, bad press. The, the yep. media is against you. The media just is fighting against you. So you know, and, and now things I worry about things like having liability insurance. So if I'm sued personally, um, that I never worried about when I started. You know, I'm a member of a, a the Fraternal Order of Police because it carries legal protection and things like that. That I didn't worry about when I was new, you know, 25 years ago. That now you can't be in this field without, in my opinion. Which I think is ridiculous that if you were doing that job, you should have a blanket coverage, regardless if you're wrong or right, uh, from the the city, state, or whoever it is, the the county that you're working for. Yeah, see, and the and the politicians they've addressed some of that. That the, they've they're the the political tide right now is pushing toward holding an officer personally responsible in situations more than holding the agency responsible. You don't train them, right? It's on, it's on the agency, not on the officer. Right. You know, we can, we can pick out a prime example that got tried this year, you know, agency should have got hung. Maybe not the guy. Yeah. You know, so it's, you know, I, I would still tell people there's, there's a lot of good and it's, it's a good career. I would, although I would be very upfront with them and very clear that, the challenges they're going to face and make sure they know what they're getting themselves into. Uh, do you think it's, do you think it's different in the uh, places that you want to become a law enforcement, like uh, small town America versus, you know, the metropolitan areas? Absolutely. You know, there are, there are law enforcement officers fleeing big cities that are going to smaller departments, going to States that are more law enforcement friendly. Absolutely. Yeah, DeSantos is giving a five thousand dollar bonus. Yep. <laughs> well, you know, and even even Florida. things, and I I don't want to get political with you know with with COVID vaccines, but I mean there are agencies that are advertising that there 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 isn't and there isn't going to ever be a vaccine mandate in their department, things like that. Yeah, I, I it's it's a really strange climate that we're in because it's affecting so many different industries in such a different way and. Uh, first responders, um, you know, you guys need to be uh, held on a little different platform in so many different ways. Um, yes, I know maybe the negative is that you're supposed to be perfect, but you're human being and, and we need to take that into consideration. I wish that they wouldn't, uh, I wish they would let you have the mental health um help that that officers need uh, just like firemen need so that you could go talk to somebody about the things that you've carrying with you from the things that you've seen and it not affect your job and, and, and instantly, you know, them tell you that you can't do the job because you have uh, remorse or, or not remorse, but uh, you have sorrow and sadness for the situation that you've seen. Yeah, no, that certainly is, is something that, that would help, you know, just, uh, our guys are spread thin, and when you work so many midnight shifts in a row, it, it can be tough. It, it gets hard to to make good decisions if you're, you know, if you've if you've worked a lot of shifts. So there are a lot of areas we could certainly improve uh, our conditions for law enforcement officers, like you said, the training, uh, the staffing levels. You know, a lot of push to have you know, social workers and mental health. And we need that. We need that for our community, but we also need 
the law enforcement officer there that can protect them and, and the community. Uh, and, and I think that's been forgotten that some of these high profile incidents, well, all law enforcement officers are bad and we're going to just send social workers. Uh, that's not going to work either. There has to be, there has to be a balance. And our, our sheriff has been on the forefront of really trying to work on community mental health services and trying to ensure that inmates, once they leave the jail, get mental health tra- treatment and things like that to try to break that, that cycle of, you know, you get treatment, you get squared away, and then you get out and you don't, and then you fall, they fall back in that behavior that caused them to come to jail. So he's been, he's been really proactive in that. Well, that's good. That's really good. Jim, I want to thank you so much for sharing your career with us. Um, I know that it's difficult to talk about everything that uh, maybe some of the questions that we had to ask or or ask can't always be fully answered because of this sensitivity. And I respect the way that you did. Uh, yeah, and I, I feel bad I couldn't answer a lot of fun stories, but that's that's one thing about law enforcement. The reality is you see TV and you see the car chases and you see the shootouts and you see the foot chases and all the fun stuff. That's only just a small part of the job. And again, Jim, thank you so much for coming on ATV Talk Inspired. The team here at ATV Talk would love your feedback. Please email us at hello at ATVTalkPodcast.com. San Diego's Body Evolution and Wellness Center. With over 17 years experience, Dr. Heidi looking out after all your chiropractic needs and Coach PJ looking out after all your fitness needs. Visit our website, www.bodyevolution.org or call for an appointment, 619-987-8875. More than 33 years in the industries building racing programs and ATVs around the world. We build winners. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode. If you did, don't forget to rate us on all available platforms and share us with your loved ones. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook for more ATV Talk News. See you next time.